Hey guys, welcome back to India Unchained. Dude, that felt so good to hear, you know. I mean, it's been a long time. Yes, it is. That's true. But I believe we owe an apology to our listeners. Oh, yes, we do. We, the Snake Charmers, apologize on the bottom of our hearts for the irregularity in publishing the episodes. But do stay tuned in because there is some awesome content coming your way. In the previous episodes, we talked about the ill effects of the British doing in India and the Indian National Congress. In today's episode, I will be narrating to you a story, hearing to which you will be able to do a root cause analysis on the Indian uprising and the national movement. India wasn't the only country that the British ruled in the entire world. There was a popular saying which you might have already heard of. The sun never sets on the British Empire. Such was the legacy of the British Kingdom over the entire world. The cause of the Indian uprising and the national movement was the economic policy of the British Empire towards India. Of all the colonial countries, India and its national movement had deep roots and understanding of the character and nature of the colonial economic domination and exploitation. The earlier Indian leaders developed a critique philosophy against the colonial economic exploitation. This has been one of the central points of focus for the popular and large-scale national movement. A misconception dominated the minds of the leaders of the early 19th century. The leaders had a positive attitude towards Britain because it was the most advanced country in terms of technology at that point in time and hoped that Britain would rebuild India through introduction of modern sciences, technology and capitalist economic organization. This misconception gradually broke and in 1860, it became clear that the progress was slow and eventually halted. The rosy image of British rule broke and the reality of it started gaining traction in the public. There were many Indian leaders who played a pivotal role in breaking the shackles. Leaders like G.V. Joshi, Subramanya Iyer, G.K. Gokhale, Prithvish Chandra Rai and hundreds of other political leaders and journalists analyzed every aspect of the economy and subjected it to minute detailed scrutiny. They were quick to assess and analyze the fact that the motives of the British imperialism were to subordinate the Indian economy. They said that the essence of the 19th century colonialism lay in transforming India into a market for supplying foodstuff, grains and raw materials to the metropolis. The colonial economy was centered at free trade and foreign capital investment. The nationalist economic agitations started with the focus and assertion that Indians were poor and were growing poorer every day. Dadabhai Naroji took it to the public platforms in India 
as well as in Britain to awaken the general public about the conditions of India. The starvation and famines that were induced in India were no act of God but were man-made and British doing. As R.C. Dutt put it, if India is poor today, it is through the operation of economic causes. To quench their thirst to get to the core of the problem, the nationalists found that the factors and forces had been brought into play by the colonial rulers. The problem of poverty approach helped in uniting every region of the country rather than dividing it. Economy developed by industrialization was viewed positively by many leaders. Leaders like G.V. Joshi and Justice Ranade felt that modern industries will give birth to a new India. Surendranath Banerjee's newspaper even published that the bond that will grow between the Indians will never extinguish with the coming of industrialization. All other parameters were looked at through the lens of industrialization, the paramount aspect. For greater the need of industrialization India needed. The nationalists were clear that this would happen only using domestic capital and no foreign investments. They saw foreign capital as an unmitigated evil only which ended up exploiting the country. Many editors of newspapers described the use of foreign capital as a system of international depredation. Additionally, the political consequences of foreign capital were harmful. The Hindu wrote in its issue dated 23 September 1889, if the influence of foreign capitalists in the land is allowed to increase, then adieu to all chances of success of the Indian National Congress whose voice will be drowned in the tremendous uproar of the empire in danger that will surely be raised by the foreign capitalists. The impact of colonial economy was clearly visible with the decline and ruin of India's traditional handcraft industry. Although the foreign trade showcased feeble growth, from the prosperity perspective, the image was false. The foreign trade was a burden in the sense the value of the raw material and food grains were traded in deficiency to the value of the import of manufactured goods. Now, shifting to the construction of railways. This did not serve the purpose of industry connection to the port as it was portrayed. It served more of a commercial aspect to the British. As G.V. Joshi put it, the railways was an Indian subsidy to the British industry and as Bal Gangadhar Tilak put it, it was like decorating another's wife. The focal point of the nationalist critique of colonialism was the drain theory. India's capital and resources were being drained to fulfill the salaries of the British army, housekeeping for the British officials and the profits to the colonial capitalists. The drain took the form of an excess of exports over imports for which 
the country did not gain economically. This drain theory was strongly voiced by Dada Bhai Naoroji in every public domain meeting. The drain theory possessed a great political boost for the Indians. The peasants and farmers understood this economy very easily and the visualization that the money they generated was transferred out of the country so that someone else could live a comfortable life. It was therefore an inevitable fact that the drain theory became this main staple of nationalist political agitation during the Gandhian era. Any regime is politically secure unless and until the people have faith in it, have the belief that the regime is working for the welfare of the people. This aspect towards the British changed drastically and the people disbelieved the British even if they did something good for the society. Step by step, issue after issue, the nationalists attacked on every economic aspect and linked it to the political cause leading to the corrosion of faith in the British Empire. This was one of the major reasons why the period 1875 to 1905 became a period of intellectual unrest and of spreading national consciousness. The seeds were sown for the modern Indian national movement. In 1904, Dadabhai took to the forefront the demand for self-government. As the president of the Congress in 1906, the session of the Congress at Calcutta, now Kolkata, he laid down the goal of the national movement as Swarajya, like that of the United Kingdom or its colonies. So, the crux of the story is the economic depredation and exploitation of Indian resources by the British led to the uniting of the people and a mass movement against the colonial empire. Whoa, Neeraj, that was really something, dude. I guess and I hope that our listeners by now have got what you wanted to convey, that this was the heart of the mass movement. But when we talk about the heart, there should be a mind, a mind that gives direction. What I mean to say is that I know some stories or instances that I would like to narrate that might give you and our listeners a better clarity on the modern India that we are talking about. I regret to say, wrote Raja Rahman Roy in 1828, that the present system of religion adhered to by the Hindus is not well calculated to promote their political interests. The distinctions of caste introducing innumerable divisions and subdivisions among them has entirely deprived them of patriotic feeling. And the multitude of religious rites and ceremonies and the laws of purification have totally disqualified them from undertaking any difficult enterprise. It is, I think, necessary that some change should take place in their religion, at least for the sake of their political advantage and social comfort. Written at a time when Indians had just begun to experience the intellectual and cultural turmoil that characterized social life in the 19th century India, this represented the immediate Indian response. 
The British conquest and consequent dissemination of colonial culture and ideology had led to an inevitable introspection about the strengths and weaknesses of indigenous cultures and institutions. Now the response indeed was varied, but the need to reform social and religious life was a commonly shared conviction. The social base of this quest was generally, but not altogether appropriately, been called the Renaissance. The Renaissance was the newly emerging middle class and the traditional as well as the western educated intellectuals. The socio-cultural regeneration in the 19th century India was occasioned by the colonial presence but not created by it. Indian society in the 19th century was caught in a vicious web created by religious superstitions and Hinduism as Max Weber observed had become a compound of magic animism and superstition and abominable rites like animal sacrifice and physical torture had replaced the worship of god yes and it doesn't end here the priest exercised an overwhelming and indeed unhealthy influence on the minds of the people idolatry and politism helped to reinforce their position now as suggested by raja ramon roy their monopoly of scriptural knowledge and ritual interpretation imparted a deceptive character to all religious systems. The faithful lived in submission not only to God, the powerful and unseen, but even to the whims, fancies and wishes of the priest. You know, there was nothing that a religious ideology could not persuade people to do. And worst, women even went to the extent of offering themselves to these priests to satisfy their carnal pleasures. It does not end there. If you see the social conditions, social conditions were equally depressing. The most distressing was the position of women. You know, the birth of a girl was unwelcome, a marriage was a burden, and her widowhood inauspicious. Attempt to kill the girl infants at birth was not unusual, and those who escaped this initial brutality was subjected to violence of marriage at a tender age. Often, the marriage was a device to escape the social ignominy and hence marital life did not turn out to be a pleasant experience. You know, an eight-year-old Brahmin in Bengal had as many as 200 wives, the youngest being just eight years old. Several women hardly had a married life worth the name since their husband participated in nuptial ceremonies for a consideration and rarely set their eyes on their wives after that. There were innumerable practices marked by constraint, credibility, status, authority, bigotry and blind fatalism. Rejecting them as features of a decadent society, the reform movement sought to create a social climate for modernization. Now, in doing so, they referred to a golden past where no such malice existed. The 19th century situation was a result of a process, a distortion of a once ideal past. Are you able to follow? Yes. The reformer's vision of the future, however, was not based on this idealization. It was an aid and instrument since practices based on faith cannot be challenged without bringing faith itself into the question. You understanding? Yeah. Hence, Raja Ramon Roy demonstrated that Sati had no religious sanction. Vidya Sagar, Vidya Sagar did not take up his pen in defense of the widow 
marriage without being convinced that scriptural support and dayanand dayanand based his anti casteism on vedic authority this however did not mean a subjection to the present to the past nor a blind rejection of tradition two important intellectual criteria which informed the reform movements were rationalism and religious universalism what are these now you know social relevance was judged by a rationalist critic okay it is difficult to match the uncompromising rationalism of the early raja ramon roy or akshay kumar dutt rejecting supernatural explanations raja ramon roy affirmed the principle of causality linking the whole phenomenal universe to him demonstrability was the sole criterion of truth in proclaiming that rationalism is our perceptor akshay kumar went a step further all natural and social phenomena he held could be analyzed and understood by purely mechanical processes the perspective not only enabled him to adopt a rational approach to tradition but also to evaluate the contemporary social religious practices from the standpoint of the social utility and to replace faith with rationality now in the brahmo samaj it led to the repudiation of infallibility of the vedas and in the aligar movement to the reconciliation of the teachings of islam with the needs of the modern age holding that religious tenets were not immutable sayed ahmed khan emphasized the role of religion in the progress of society if religion did not keep its pace and met the demands of the time it would get fossil as in the case of islam in india now the perspectives on reform were not always influenced by religious considerations a rational and secular outlook was very much evident in posing an alternative to prevalent social practices like in advocating widow marriage and opposing polygamy and child marriage akshay kumar was not only concerned about religious sanction or whether they existed in the past his arguments were mainly based on their effects on society yeah instead of depending on the scriptures he cited medical opinion against child marriage he held very advanced ideas about marriage and family courtship before marriage partnership and equality as the base of married life and divorce by both law and custom now in maharashtra as compared to other regions there was less dependence on religion as an aid to social reform the 19th century witnessed a cultural ideological struggle against the backward elements of traditional culture on one hand and the past hegemonizing colonial culture and ideology on the other the initial reforming movements represented the former now in the religious sphere you know they sought to remove idolatry polytheism and priestly monopoly of religious knowledge and to simplify religious rituals now they were important not only for religious reasons but equally for their social implications they contributed to the liberation of the individual from conformity bomb out of fear and from uncritical submission to the exploitation of the priests the dissemination of religious knowledge through translation of religious text into vernacular languages and the right granted to the laity to interpret scriptures represented an important initial breach in the stranglehold of misinterpreted religious dogmas 
Now, the simplification of rituals made worship a more intensely personal experience without the meditation of intermediaries. The individual was thus encouraged to exercise his freedom. This does make us think that if the reform movements had totally rejected tradition, Indian society would have easily undergone a process of westernization. But the reformers were aiming at modernization rather than westernization. There is a huge difference. A blind initiation of western cultural norms was never an integral part of the reform. To initiate and undertake these reforms which today appear to be modest, weak and limited was not an easy proposition. It brought about unprecedented mental agony and untold domestic and social tension. Breaking the bonds of tradition created emotional and sentimental crisis for men and women caught between two worlds. The first widow marriage in Bengal attracted thousands of curious spectators. To the first such couple in Maharashtra, the police had to give lattes to protect themselves. Rukma Bai, who refused to accept her uneducated and unaccomplished husband, virtually unleashed a storm. Faced with the prospect of marrying a young girl, much against his conviction, Ranade spent several sleepless nights. So did Lohitwadi, Telang and host of others who were torn between traditional sentiments and modern commitments. Several however scumbled to the former, but it was out of this struggle that the new men and the new society evolved in India. Faced with the challenge of intrusion of colonial culture and ideology, an attempt to reinvigorate traditional institutions and realize the potential of traditional culture developed during the 19th century. Now the initial expression of the struggle against the colonial domination manifested itself in the realm of culture as a result of the fact that the principles on which the colonial state functioned were not more retrogressive than those of the pre-colonial state. What I mean to say is all intrusions into the cultural realm were more intensely felt. Therefore, a defense of indigenous culture developed almost simultaneously with the colonial conquest. Now this concern embraced the entire cultural existence, the way of life and all signifying practices like language, religion, art and philosophy. But two features characterize this concern. The creation of an alternate cultural ideological system and the regeneration of traditional institutions. The cultivation of vernacular languages, the creation of an alternate system of education, the efforts to regenerate Indian art and literature, the emphasis on Indian dress and food, the defense of religion and attempts to revitalize Indian system of medicine, the attempt to probe the potentialities of pre-colonial technology and to reconstruct traditional knowledge were some of the expressions of this concern. Now, the early link inklings of this can be discerned in Raja Raman's Roy debates with the Christian missionaries. In the formation and activities of Tatvo Bodhini Sabha, in the memorial on education signed by 70,000 inhabitants of Madras, and in general resentment against the Lex Lokai Act. A more definite articulation, however, was in the ideas and activities of the later moments generally categorized as conservative and revivalist. Strongly native in tendency, they were clearly influenced by the need to defend indigenous culture against colonial cultural hegemony. 
in this specific historical sense they were not necessarily retrogressive for underlying these efforts was the concern with the revival of the cultural personality distorted if not destroyed by the colonial domination more so because it formed an integral element in the formation of national consciousness you know some of these tendencies however were not able to transcend the limit of historical necessity but this was possibly a consequence of the lack of integration between the cultural and political struggles resulting in cultural backwardness despite political advance now guys if i have to just sum up everything that i just told you i would say that you know the cultural ideological struggle represented by the socio religious movements was an integral part of the evolving national consciousness why do i say this i say this because it was instrumental in bringing about the initial intellectual and cultural break which made a new vision of the future possible secondly it was part of the resistance against the colonial culture and ideological hegemony but you know out of this dual struggle evolved the modern cultural situation new men new homes and a new society oh new society is it well i'm curious to know about it then you will have to tune into the next episode but for now thank you so much for listening to episode 3 be the snake charmers a signing off